Hi, welcome to The Lydia Project, conversations with Christian women. My name's Tori Walker and this is episode 34. First up, I've got some good news. The Lydia Project is growing and so my good friend Taryn Hayes is going to come on board and help me produce the podcast in the future. So she'll be helping with editing, publishing, promoting, and also doing some of the interviews. She's a great person to be doing this because she's got good experience and great ideas. She's also a great person to be doing the interviews because she's really uh, one of those people who's so interested in other people's Christian growth and ministry. She's a really thoughtful listener, and she loves to dig below the superficial to get to the real reasons why people say or do the things that they do. I just know you're going to enjoy the interviews that she is going to be doing. Um, but before you hear her asking the questions, of course, you're going to want to know a bit more about her and, well, what's the best way to get to know somebody in podcast land? I do believe it is to interview them. I first met Taryn properly when she and her family arrived in Brisbane about a year and a half ago. They immigrated from South Africa and decided to come to our church. Taryn's loads of fun, she's very generous, and she's got a really careful and thoughtful approach to the decisions that she makes as a Christian woman, wife, and mum. Let's hear more from Taryn. Well, Taryn, it's so great to have you as a guest on the Lydia Project today, and I'm sure listeners will enjoy getting to hear a bit of your story before they hear you on the Lydia Project asking people about their story. And your story is quite a story, so I'm calling it now. I think it's going to be one of our longer interviews today. (laughs) Uh, But first, tell us how you came to faith in Christ and grew in him. Well, it is lovely to be here. It's a bit strange being on this side, but um, how I came to know the Lord. It is funny how the Lord works, because if it wasn't for my uncle, I don't think any of our family, well, certainly he was the catalyst for our family to come to church and hear the gospel. So I grew up in Johannesburg in South Africa for the first four years of my life. And then we moved to Cape Town, back where my parents grew up. And there had been a minister that everybody had been talking about. And my uncle had gone to listen to him. And he was really excited. He was billed the Billy Graham of South Africa. And so we went to this church that my uncle was just raving about. And through the preaching of Frank Retief, my mum rededicated her life to the Lord. She had become a Christian as a teenager, but had completely backslidden and married my pagan father and lived a very pagan life. And um, yet she came back to the Lord and we started going to church. So I was about five at the time, and that was my first memory of anything church, anything Jesus. And about around the age of six, I think hearing the gospel over and over through Sunday school, through the little um, children's kids club that I was going to on a Friday evening, it just started to make sense to me. And I remember lying out on the grass in the front of our garden. Six years old, it was a summer's day. I remember everything about it, clarity. And I was lying on the grass and I was looking at the sky and I was just thinking, this actually all makes sense. If, if Jesus is who they say he is and he did die on the cross for me, I know I'm a sinner. I, I know I'm a naughty little girl and that I need to be saved. And so that evening... I prayed to Jesus and I asked him to be the Lord of my life and to be my saviour and, you know, in, in six-year-old language to come into my heart. But as I grew older, I started to doubt my salvation because I was still this dirty, rotten sinner. And I was still, you know, didn't really want to read my Bible, would still fight with my siblings. And I just knew I was quite sinful. And I did wonder if somehow I just wasn't a Christian, wasn't good enough. And... Um, 
was on a camp, a Sunday school camp, and having these very private, deep thoughts, thinking I was the only one. And the leader of that camp um, shared exactly that, spoke to us about where we were at, if we felt that the Lord was no longer the Lord of our life, if we felt that maybe he had left us, and explained assurance in a way that I could understand as a child. And so after that talk, I went to speak to Uncle Noel. I still remember his name. And he sat with me and spoke me through the gospel and explained that that I would actually have to reject Christ outright for him to no longer be the Lord and Savior of my life. And so we prayed a prayer then. And from that point, I understood assurance with a growing sense. So even though as a teenager, I still struggled with obedience and still struggled with desire to read my Bible and to grow spiritually and made foolish decisions along the way, I knew that Jesus was still my Lord and still my Savior, and particularly my Savior, even though I often didn't treat him like my Lord. So yeah, that would be, in essence, my story. And obviously, here I am at 42, still still often on my knees saying, oh Lord, <laughs> I am so glad. I don't have to work out my salvation and that you have saved saved me because I'm really bad at this <laughs> obedience thing. But yeah, trusting him still. Yeah. And if it I mean, as it depends on him and not us, that's mm. just the beauty and assurance, isn't it? That Absolutely. We can come back to Christ who hasn't changed and Christ whose work was still mm. effective even if we're faltering and sinful. Exactly that. And doubting. Well, you're now married with four kids and living in Australia, so obviously a lot has happened since you became a Christian in South Africa. But tell us how you met your husband. Okay, another series of foolish decisions as a teenager. (laughs) Um, By this stage, I was going to a youth group um, that was quite closely affiliated with my school and was lovely, lots of fun, lots of teenagers. And um, he happened to be amongst the crowd, I saw him in the distance, and turned out that he had his eye on me, which was great because I <laughs> wasn't used to that at all. Um, and yeah, long story short, we, we actually met by bumping heads physically at a school disco, as they were called back then. Um, I was looking for my friend. She was with his friend. It was loud music. I was trying to ask him, where's my friend? He couldn't hear me, so he kind of came down to me while I kind of went up to him, and we smashed heads, and it was really sore. But that is a significant part of our now story of how we met. Anyway, he pursued me for a little while. I initially wasn't interested, but then we went out for a movie, and it, and I just thought, oh, actually, this guy is quite intelligent. I quite enjoyed our conversation. And so we started dating but with I was 15 he was 17 and both of us independently thought oh yeah he's nice she's nice let's just see where this summer romance goes not thinking in the slightest that this would be somebody who would actually marry but we fell head over heels in love with each other and everything that comes with just you know teenage romance and not thinking carefully about physical boundaries and all those kind of things and just really getting embedded in a very deep, very intense relationship to the exclusion of many other relationships. So a lot of lack of wisdom, a lot of lack of wisdom, but God in his incredible grace kept us and six years after we met, we got married and we've been married 20 years. 
So, oh, well, tell me something that you like about Craig. Tell me what you enjoy. He cracks me up. My kids laugh at me because he tells the dad jokes. I find them hilariously funny and they're rolling their eyes. Aaron, don't encourage him. <laughs> and, yeah, so I, I'm the one who's always laughing at him. He is very wise. He is often able to cut through and see things that I don't, that I really appreciate, but often it takes me forever to understand. And so he will, he'll see something and he will get there and often I need him to come back to where I'm at and like walk me through to get there, which is both infuriating <laughs> because I just don't get it. And then mm. when I see it, it's really, really helpful because there's a lot of wisdom in that. So I really appreciate those things about him. And um, I've always thought he's gorgeous. My kids think I'm nuts, but I think he's gorgeous and I still think he's gorgeous, which is probably a good thing. <laughs> So those are just some things, yeah. So you trained as a teacher and worked in the education system in South Africa. What made you choose to homeschool your own kids? That is a good question. So initially I thought homeschoolers were nuts. I thought they were crazy. I felt so sorry for poor children who are homeschooled because they would be stuck inside all day. They wouldn't get to socialize. They would be socially awkward. They would grow up to be these people who had very limited understanding of the world. Basically, every stereotype many people think about homeschoolers, I thought, with enormous amounts of judgment. <laughs> and um, my first exposure to homeschoolers actually was when I was an exchange student in America. And my friend um, was babysitting for these homeschool kids and she invited me to their science expo. And I thought, well, this is going to be quaint. We're going to go off to somebody's house and they were going to see these two little children showing off their little science project to their family. I was very surprised to go and discover that actually this was a massive expo on a school level because all the homeschooling families in the area get together. And I was really impressed with what I saw, but still with enormous amounts of judgment and this must be an anomaly. And that's kind of where I left homeschooling. And then... I started teaching and still lots of criticism about homeschooling because why would you do that when you've got to train to be a teacher and so on and so forth. But then in teaching in, some, in the South African context, I became very aware of some things I didn't like about the school environment that I didn't feel I had power to change, especially not later on as a parent. Um, I didn't like how much control I had as a teacher. I could tell my kids in my classroom anything and they would believe me over their parents very often. And I was teaching high school. So I was teaching grades 7 through to grade 12, and especially in the younger grades of but those. high school. Yeah. Parents know nothing in high yeah. school, so of course the but teacher you, you would think swipe. that their, their friends, they, and very often their peers, were you know that was the advice they would follow. But very often I could tell those kids things, and, and they might go home and tell their parents that their parents didn't know what they're talking about because Mrs. Hayes said X or Y. And then I was also very aware that I didn't know anything, actually. Like the more you learn, the less you, know, you realize, the less you know kind of thing. And um, so that concerned me that I had that kind of power in the classroom for those many hours with those children. And I was also concerned with the peer influence I would see. And I was teaching in this little Christian school and, um, you know, it's supposed to be a cotton wool environment. And yet the sin of man is evident in, in every situation. And I would see this with these, these kids and their peer influence. Um, and I was concerned about that as well, the amount of time peers would have to influence each other without guidance. And so when I was pregnant with Kira, these things kind of plagued me in the back of my mind. I didn't feel that we had many options. And in the South African context, 
the government was going through a major overhaul of the curriculum and so of course I was going off to all these training days and I was astounded at what they wanted to teach our children from a, a life skills perspective. There what was, direction was it heading so they, in? It very much in teaching kids at a very young age sexual concepts that I felt they should not know. Now in the South African context it partially makes sense because many, many kids come from underprivileged backgrounds. They're living in townships. Very often parents have died of HIV. They're being raised by a grandmother who goes out to work all day. They actually are being raised by peers and people just in the community that may not have their interests at heart. And so to teach them these things at a young age to make them aware to protect themselves does make sense. But in our particular context, where my child would probably not ever be exposed to those kind of things and not need to equip herself and be so streetwise at such a young age, I wanted to give them time to be children, to not have to worry about HIV and rape and these things that they were wanting to introduce children as young as the age of eight through the school curriculum. So those things just made me super alarmed. And as a result, it made me start looking elsewhere for other educational options. And so I kind of got exposed to homeschooling through a more positive channel through a friend of mine who was a, a colleague actually she was a teacher she just adopted a child about three months before I had Kira and her friends were homeschooling and she started to talk to me about it and I started to think less negatively critically and more well what is this all about and then she put a catalog into my hands a catalog for a particular homeschooling curriculum and I started reading through this catalog and in it it was it was all the books that they sell and they program and how they structure their program and the educational philosophy behind it and then all these testimonies, these families' testimonies of what they enjoyed about it. And the more I read about it, I just kept going, wow, I wish I was taught like this. I wish I grew up like this. I would love to have been schooled like this. And then I closed the cover, and on the front cover it says, the way you wish you were taught. <laughs> and I went, whoa, okay. So it just got me thinking a little bit more. I actually just wanted to homeschool for the sake of this curriculum, and then I thought, you know, you can't do that. So I started going backwards and started researching a lot more, reading up a lot about it, asking people questions. Okay, so I've just got to jump in here. Yes. Um, I know you really well, Taryn. Our listeners don't, but when you say you researched a lot, <laughs> guys, she researched a lot. <laughs> I know that now. <laughs> um, but, yes, I do do a lot of research into things and so I did a lot of research and I became convinced Craig was not convinced mm. he came from an all-boys school growing up a very prestigious school did all the sports made sense to kind of continue in the tradition and so I was so convinced about it and and just praying Lord I really think that the positives of homeschooling are so good that the reasons why I started down this track being the fear factors of schooling they just fell away. They, I now wanted a homeschool because of all the positives, all the benefits. I had a husband who wasn't interested, so I prayed about it and said, Lord, please, if this is good for our family, will you convince Craig? And I didn't want to convince him through me nagging him or um, you know, pushing him into this decision. I remember one particular evening, I'd been praying about it, and I was walking upstairs at our church. We had a bookshop upstairs, and it was in the evening. Kira was about a year Craig was home with her. We used to alternate evening services. And I was walking up the stairs, and there was a big book sale on. And we were not wealthy at all. I had 60 rand in my back pocket. Didn't know it at the time, which is equivalent to $6. And I thought, oh, wouldn't it be great to find a book on homeschooling here? <laughs> and then I thought, oh, that's silly. Why would there be a book on homeschooling at a church bookshop? Anyway, on the table 
there was a book, and the title was Should I Homeschool? Question mark. I went, no. And then I picked this book up and I opened it, and the price for the book had been reduced to 60 rand. And I had 60 rand in my back pocket. So it was, again, one of those very surreal moments that I don't often have that I just think, Lord, what are you doing here? So I bought it. I read it that evening. It was, I felt, one of the most balanced books I've ever read. The authors said, we are homeschoolers. We come with a bias. We're going to try to be as unbiased as possible. Really hard, obviously, when you do feel positive about it. And uh, they just laid it all out. All the questions that people have, all the concerns. What about socialization? What about teaching science and the higher grades? And they addressed them all. And I just thought, I need to get Craig to read this book. But how? Because he hates hates these kind of books he does not enjoy parenting books he does not enjoy um, how-to kind of books Um, so I again prayed about it and I thought well Lord I'm going to ask him to read it and if he says no that's it I'm that that's I see that as closed and we just go with whatever he feels is good for the kids kid at that stage so I approached him and I said please can you read this book if at the end of it you decide that you don't want to homeschool and it's not a good idea, then that's fine. And I won't carry on opening this topic with you. Anyway, he read it. And he read it really quickly. And afterwards he said, okay, let's do this for the first three years. We'll do it full foundation phase. That's what it's called back in South Africa, grade one, two, and three. And after that, I think it will still be good for Hera to go to school. But we can reassess. Well, I remember by that stage I was blogging a lot. And I remember when Kira was at the end of grade three, writing a blog post about homeschooling and frequently asked questions. And then I realized, here we are. What does he think? So I asked him and he went, basically, if it's not broke, don't fix it, <laughs> as that saying goes. He, he was convinced himself. And I knew he was 100% completely on board when in social situations people would ask us about homeschooling. And he would take up the mantle and start explaining all the the answers to the questions people would ask. And he was convinced himself. And here we are. Kira turned 17 this year. She's still homeschooled. And so are the other three kids. Yeah, so that's a question I think a lot of people have. Um, How did you homeschool when you were changing nappies and feeding babies (laughs) and running after toddlers? And was that just crazy it is crazy I'm, I'm not gonna lie it's not picture perfect all the time in fact it's very seldom picture perfect but you go with it you go with the flow so in our particular situation I had somebody who came to help me with housework in South Africa there was something I could do and I could afford the most difficult time I think was when my youngest Micah was a toddler because he was very intense and needy and so Johanna, who used to come and do the housework, would help out with him, and she would take him to the park. And then there were just seasons where it was crazy. It was crazy, but there are no exams. We'd, I didn't go an exam route. You can go with curricula that do that. You can go in a complete opposite extreme and unschool, which is very much more child-directed, organic way of doing it, which I was petrified to do. Um, we kind of sat somewhere in the middle, but there would be times when we didn't do much schoolwork at all, but they still grew and learn so much and I realized that for the first time when I was desperately trying to get Kira to read because I knew she loved it she wanted to do it but we just kept hitting these obstacles and I just thought I'm actually I can't this is just so hard this is a fight where at the end of the year I'm just not even going to expect her to pick up a book or anything for the whole school holidays seven eight weeks later we kind of approached school again and this girl could read 
she could suddenly read. Whereas before it had been this chore, she was just reading. And I, we hadn't done school for seven, eight weeks at all. And it just had come with her own maturity. She needed to age a bit. She just needed to be relaxed and not have this scheduled life. And it worked. Of course, I had to learn that lesson over and over, and I'm still learning that lesson with my kids, that it's, it's okay. But I do fear that sometimes I get too relaxed as well. So I'm constantly finding myself having to realign, if that makes sense. Mm. Well, that seems to me yeah. from the outside, it seems one of the biggest benefits of exactly. homeschooling is that flexibility because yes. I know at our church, Sunday night church is really cool, but anyone with kids, teenage kids, primary school kids goes, no, Sunday night, school tomorrow. But mm. you guys go yeah. to cool late church <laughs> and then sleep in on Monday morning. So, well, we don't start. sleep in on Monday morning because we really? do go off to something quite early. But there but is, you're used to sleeping. So, no? Well, not really, but we don't have to. It's okay. The day can go slowly. There's not this immediate pressure of having to be on form straight away. And if it goes slowly in the morning, that's okay. And yeah. one of the benefits is we do get to do Bible time in the morning very often. And sometimes that goes on forever because we get stuck in these amazing discussions. And that's okay. Mm. Maths can wait. <laughs> We're talking about <laughs> gospel Maths teachers will be going, what? <laughs> no, it can wait. It can totally wait. Yeah. yeah. So what are the other advantages that you see that so you So the big enjoy? things are the freedom and flexibility. Freedom to explore what makes sense to you as a family and your kids and their passions. The flexibility to do so wherever and whenever. When the kids were little and Craig used to travel a lot in South Africa, um, there were times we could go with him. Mm. And that was great, you know, go up the east coast of South Africa, go to the beach in the day while he's visiting clients, and then he would come back and do some of the schooling with them, read to them, and it was wonderful, mm. was, especially when they're younger, because mm. there, there is no pressure to achieve these high levels of academic excellence. They're just learning. Mm. That's, that's just fabulous. And now... Especially here in Australia, I don't feel any pressure for them to have achieved any OPs or ATARs or all those kind of things because there's so many paths into uni that they can take. And because they're so used to not going the normal route, they don't feel this pressure to achieve ATARs and OPs. And they are open to doing different routes into uni. So, as you know, my eldest is doing um, so three in business admin this year. She's exploring other things that she loves to do. She finished last year a lot of grade 10 and 11 level work so that she could spend this year, grade 11 by age, being a little bit more flexible with what she does. She wants to do Bible college next year and hoping to find an interesting route into that, doing a diploma in theology. Maybe that's her, her current desire. And I don't feel stressed, which is, I think, a good thing. Mm. And so what are some of the harder things about homeschooling from your experience that I don't get to drop them off with somebody else for numbers of hours <laughs> in a day <laughs> I do think I would love to do that I I it does mean having to put a lot of my passions on hold um, I love to write and I have discovered through having written my own book that to do that requires enormous amounts of time because once I'm stuck, once I'm in the zone, that's all I want to do. I want to live, breathe, eat, sleep, the book. I don't want to be a mum. I don't want to be a wife. I don't want to be any of those things. I want to just write. Um, and I know I can't repeat that until my kids are older and out of the house um, or not needing me nearly as much. Mm. So those kind of things I can't pursue. 
sometimes they don't want to listen to mum. Mm, I was going to ask about yeah. that. Just that relationship between being a mum and a parent and being their teacher. Yeah, so I'm always their mum. I'm always their parent. Whether I am telling them to clean up their room or to do their maths or to listen to me while I'm helping them with their writing, something I actually do know something about, I'm always mum. And that can be frustrating because often they do listen to other people better. And you've got to be wise about sometimes choosing that for them. And you're sort of involved in a few co-ops, aren't you? How do do the co-ops work? So different co-ops do different things. So sometimes it's a drop-off with another teacher or mum who takes a group of kids in a particular subject. Um, So one of my kids does that for science. Sometimes mums get together and take a different subject at a time. So last year we were involved in a group where... One mum did an art class, one mum did a writing class, we did Shakespeare together. In South Africa, belonged to a similar group. We would meet once a week and do art and music. And, and do those writing. kids all then become your kids' close yeah, friends? Yeah, so the lot, that, that did. Back in South Africa, we called them the lunch bunch because we met around lunchtime and never came up with a better name. But it was awesome. For eight years, our kids grew up together and completely, vastly different personality children. Um, in the mix, we had a kid who has, who's diagnosed with autism, and yet those kids just rallied around him and loved him. And they're different. Now, my daughter loves musical theatre and theatre and drama and writing, whereas many of the other kids are into biology and plants and birds and things Kira couldn't care to who's about, but they love each other and got to know each other as family, really. And we see the same kind of relationships here in Australia. We've only been here 20 months, but they have made wonderful friends, both in the homeschooling community and in church and other areas where they've met people. And often it's through the co-ops where they really strengthen those friendships. Mm. Yeah. And you mentioned at the beginning that when you were teaching, you were quite um, judgmental of homeschooling families. Um, now you're on the inside and you've changed your mind. Have you experienced some of that judgment towards you? How do you handle yes, that? Yes, that's a good question. So in the beginning, I would feel very defensive and I would want to rush to defend our decision. And I often didn't know how. And so I was, as I was learning about homeschooling and excited about it, I would tell people and realize that they, they weren't quite on board. <laughs> And I think I've realized over the years I've become more measured when I get excited about something. When I get excited about something I'm, I wanted to share with the world and I want them to be convinced and and I've realized that I need to tone down on that. In the beginning, I got a lot of pushback. And I've since discovered you know, not to push back and to be defensive because the reality is that people who aren't on board or have never come across before their questions were my questions, and they're legitimate questions when you first discover this thing. What about socialization? Now, homeschoolers will roll their eyes at you and go, oh, we've heard this question a hundred times. And we were just talking about it this morning, actually. My daughter, she's told me, uh, this is my second daughter, Katie, who is the social butterfly. She is. <laughs> and her friends at one youth group that she goes to, she goes to two youth groups, said to her, so how do you have friends? And Katie laughed at them and said, you're my friend. And I, that's one of the ways we become friends is through the various activities we are part of. And so they have to defend themselves as well, but it's much more in conversation. So my advice to new homeschoolers always is answer the question with oodles amounts of grace 
and admit before I knew about homeschooling, these were my concerns too, but this is how we solve it. So it's just really answering questions in much the same way, I think, that we answer questions about the gospel when we are confronted by antagonistic questions, to not come back with hard defense, but to be gracious, seasoned with salt. And yet the gospel we think is good for everybody. Yes. Do you honestly believe that homeschooling is good for everybody? No, no. In my early days, I was, it's for everybody. Everybody should homeschool. But with maturing, I've realized that no, it's not. And even within the same family, sometimes it is actually good for one child to be at school and for the other children to be homeschooled or vice versa. I have felt for our family that what is best for the family made sense. And for our family, that means everybody is homeschooled. But in our family, maybe one day what is best for the family is that one child goes to school. You have to be wise about your own family circumstances and your own children and their personalities and how that all fits together. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned that you wrote a book, an all-consuming project. Yes. What made you want to write the book and what's it about? So my children made me want to write this book. Homeschooling my kids, we use a literature-based approach, which is reading lots of really good books that deal with subject matter, but in a narrative kind of way, often through fiction, but historical fiction, for example. And I was just realizing a couple of things. My kids were reading loads of books about school kids. You don't find very many books about homeschool kids. And they, we weren't coming across great contemporary books about South African context and history and children. And so I thought, well, why don't I just start writing something for my kids? Which is exactly what I did. I started writing chapter by chapter the story that had been kind of brewing in my mind. And I didn't tell them I was writing it. I just would read a chapter as I wrote it. And they loved it, especially my eldest, who was the one who remembers it the most now. But did um, they know that you'd written it? They didn't know I'd written it. Oh, they just so thought funny. I was reading them some book. See, I've read the book. Didn't they think it was like eerily similar to their yes. situation? <laughs> so I wrote it. I weaved into the story things that were similar. So there came a point when I did tell them I had been writing it because they were like, oh, that's just like our house. Oh, that's what we do. Um, and, and of course, they loved it even more because it was so familiar. Um, but my eldest daughter was about nine. 10, I'm trying to think, 10, 11, somewhere around there at the time. And she said, Mom, you have to finish this book and you have to get it published. You have to publish this. And she was writing a lot herself at that stage and had actually, as a young 11-year-old, already got herself published through um, a short story program that was going into all the newspapers in South Africa. She, she wrote um, a few stories and got published in that. Um, so she knew a little bit about that world and she was excited for me. And I thought, well, maybe, maybe, maybe I can self-publish it because I know the homeschooling community might enjoy it. So I could share it with them kind of thing. This idea kind of grew and grew. And then I started researching, <laughs> researching, <laughs> self-publishing and what that would look like and going the more traditional publishing route and prayed about it a lot and put it out to a few traditional publishers in South Africa and um, then I thought no I probably should self-publish because then I have control over it. it's not going to become all-consuming I'm not going to have to go and 
marketed left, right and center if somebody does think it's fabulous and wants me to do something like that. And just as I made that decision, the next day, the very next day, I got an email from a publishing, a small publishing company going, we want to have a meeting with you. And as it turned out, they are such a small publishing company. They were happy to print and publish my book, but they were happy for me to have a little bit more control over it than I might have had if I had gone with a bigger name. Well, let me be accurate. If a bigger name had chosen to go with me, which none of them did. And so long story short, we published this book through Naledi Publishers in South Africa. And they allowed me to self-publish it on the Amazon platform because this was only published within South Africa. So they allowed me to go international on the Amazon platform using their layout um, and they cover artwork and all that kind of thing, which has been fabulous because it's it's sold out in South Africa and it hasn't gone through a reprint, but it's still available. And it's now being used by a South African homeschooling curriculum, so people do need access to it, so they can get it on Kindle and Amazon still, which is fabulous. So do you know how so many yeah. it's sold? They did a print run of 3,000 in South Africa, which is, in a South African context, a fairly big print run. And you can't buy it anymore in South Africa that I know of. It's now being sourced in the South African online platforms. It's been sourced through the Amazon um, portal, which Amazon prints themselves. So I'm assuming it's... Oh, as a hard copy. Uh, yeah, so you can copy. get a hard copy yep. and a Kindle copy through Amazon. So. Yep. There are online portals like there's one called Take Lot in South Africa. It's, it's the big online shop, and they sell it. Mm-hmm. And when I look through who they're selling it through, it's through Amazon that they'll sell it through. So, right. yeah. And what's it called? It's called Seekers of the Lost Boy. By Taryn Hayes. Yes, and it's still very surreal that I've written this book. And so how many is it sold through Amazon? That is a good question. Not a lot. Um, I, I get updates every now and again. It's kind of piecemeal. Do you get so get up, Updates from... But do you get, like, royalties? Yes, from... but, I mean, they're tiny. Yeah. I don't think I... I, I it all goes on to an, a, a different an American account that I have, which I still have to sort the tax out through. So they keep enormous amounts of tax because I don't know how all this all works. And I earn so little that I haven't even felt the impetus to go and get that all sorted out but it is on my very long to-do list so I do but it's you might need to do a bit more research Tara yes and writing at some point in time and marketing the marketing side is incredibly soul sapping it really is how come because whether you are with a big company that has a massive marketing budget or whether you're with a small publishing company or self-publishing you as an author have to Mm self-promote and it is incredibly difficult because unless you enjoy self-promotion, it's putting yourself in a space that's not comfortable at all. And I had to kind of learn this process while doing it and while making mistakes. And I caught an enormous amount of flack in South Africa, mostly from one or two people, which caused an enormous amount of um, heartache for me, really. As in, they were critical of the fact that you were promoting, promoting something you've yes, done. Yes, the self-promotion that came with it, and um, there were there were ways in which I did it that must have looked quite pushy or maybe arrogant. And um, you know, you th- who are you? You think you've written this book, and that you now this everybody thinks you're amazing. And it also it did this particular thing did come in a greater context of having been a writer, writing blogs, having children, homeschooling, people often would come to me, how do you do it all? You're just amazing. I'm not amazing. I'm, I'm a mum who struggles, but who enjoys writing and who has had life easy in many ways, in such a way that has been able to facilitate the things I was doing. And I think for this particular 
crowd, it was hard to see people they knew and loved struggle through life, working really hard and not having the reward maybe that it looked like I had, looking like I just accept all these accolades when it wasn't the case. And it took me many, many years of soul searching and looking deeply within my intentions and my pride and trying to peel back the layers because it is easy to kid yourself. It's really easy to kid yourself that you're not this negative characteristic when maybe you really, really are. And um, it's easier if a whole lot of people are saying to you, but it's hard when one or two people might be saying it to you. And so it took many, many years to realize that a lot of the criticism was unfounded. And in the areas where it was founded, and it was, um, were areas I could work on and and was able to do that. So it did help me be very self-critical in both positive and negative ways. But it, it's I'm fearful, to be honest, to wade back into that world. So I really love writing and I really want to write another book. But apart from my children being at home and needing to give them that kind of attention, to be honest, another close on its heels factor is I'm scared of doing that all over again, the self-promotion and the stuff that goes with it. It's it's not fun. Mm. Not fun at all. Mm. <laughs> yeah. You need someone who will do all the promoting for you yeah. and go, this book's awesome, you should buy it. Yes, Dora, you can be that person. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, I'll promote your first book. Um, I read it and I really enjoyed it. And I think everybody should buy a copy and read it. <laughs> Thank you, And Tori. it's not expensive. It's on Amazon quite cheaply on the Kindle version. Yes. Yeah. Six ninety nine. I, I actually it think changes? it's currently less than that. I, okay. think it's, I don't know. It depends on which where the market is. And the American market is cheaper. They yeah. put on a little bit more extra for the Australian market and South African market and UK market. and yeah. yeah. So I got my copy on Kindle, but I think I should buy a paper copy because then my kids can read it. Yeah. Because I don't read my Kindle much. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, from books and the difficulty of self-publishing, we're going to move to another very, very difficult part of your life, and that was when Katie was sick. Mm. Do you want to mm. tell us about that? Sure, yes. My goodness, if ever there was an exposure of neglectful mother, <laughs> this story would be it. I love my children. Many of their abilities have come through my neglect, waking up to things at the last minute or when they've already way ahead of me. And this story is one of them. So Katie's my second daughter. She's now 14. And when she was 11, she started complaining of headaches and just not feeling so good. But it was on and off. And for a period of a few months, she would say, yeah, she just had have this, this headache and then be fine the next day. And then she complained a bit that her forehead felt a bit weird. And she would kind of rub her eyebrow above her left eyebrow and just say, if I touch it, it just feels strange, mom. It just feels weird. And I kind of went, oh, it must be this, it must be that. And have a drink of water. Yeah, <laughs> drink, <and play>. exactly. <laughs> Exactly, and I had had I had suffered neuralgia, um, trigeminal neuralgia, which is it's basically inflamed nerve endings on my face, and her description was very similar, but in a certain area. So I'm like, oh well, what cured it for me after much research and discovering um, the wonders of omega-3, that cured the neuralgia for me. So I'm like, well, let's up your omega-3s, and it didn't really help. And then I remembered it was towards the end of the year. It was December, 30th of November. And we had all these things, end of the year things happening, and she had this massive headache, and she complained that her head was really sore, and I felt it, and it was a bump there, this big bump, and I thought, that is not good. 
So the next day we went off to the doctor and just the GP and he did an x-ray and asked a bunch of questions. X-ray showed nothing, but from the description there was enough concern that he said, you actually need to go have an MRI, I think. Thankfully, my brother-in-law, my husband's brother is a radiologist, so we didn't have to go through the referral process. We could just go straight in there. And I will never forget the look on Mary's face, my brother-in-law when he came out to tell me that he now needed to do an injection dye to be able to do the scan again, but with the dye, so that you could see something. He looked ashen, and I just knew something was wrong. And it's very hard to tell the story without crying, even though my daughter's alive and well. <laughs> um, he really did look quite alarmed, but trying to keep it all together. And anyway, so I actually ended up seeing, she had a CAT scan as well that day, the CT scan, and I remember standing with a radiographer, and as the image came up on the screen, it forward looked like somebody had cracked an egg. So you know what it looks like when, when you crack an egg and part of it kind of sinks in and it's a bit cracked and it's all kind of sunken in. That's what her forehead looked like. Very long story short, they weren't sure what it was, but they knew it was something that needed probably needed surgery. And so she had to go in for the very next day to have a biopsy done. And then they had to go to pathology. And my brother-in-law thought it might be an eosinophilic granuloma, which is a word I now know well enough. <laughs> and can um, say very simply. <laughs> and um, that often affects bone. It basically kind of turns your bone into mush. And he, the so bone sure. So her forehead in the, the bone was being eaten away by this eosinophilic granuloma. And they weren't sure what it was. For a whole week, we didn't know. And there was a possibility that it was cancer. Mm. Everybody kept kind of skirting around that without saying the C word. They weren't sure if it had impacted her brain. This was on her skull, but it could have gone through. And the manges, although it didn't look like it, but it looked like it might. Their big concern was that if it did, it could cause inflammation of the manges and give her meningitis. And it could kill her as well. So there was a lot of uncertainty and a lot of concern during that time. It doesn't sound like any of those outcomes were good. Like no, any of no, those no, no, not at all. Anyway, pathology came back with a eosinophilic granuloma and a recommendation that was removed. And so two weeks before Christmas, she had to go in and have surgery. She now has, we tease her, she's Barbie, she's got a plastic forehead. And she's got a, an acrylic plaster in her forehead and, uh, and then sewn back up again. And, and so did they do that. it just behind the hairline? Just behind the hairline. So they had to shave her all the way yep. back beyond that. So she had maybe about a, almost a 10 centimetre shaved portion on the top of her head. Yep. She looked very odd mm. for a while. She did so well. She mm. wore it almost with, with a sense of pride. Initially, she would have hair bands to cover it, but as the hair grew back, it was really itchy. And, and so she just would toss it. And boys at, at Sunday school would look at her and say... The one time these kids came up to her and they said, are you wearing a wig? And they thought she was wearing a wig and it shifted. And, and this exposed bit was actually her skin underneath. She's like, no, I'm not wearing a wig, see? And she's like tugging her hair. And she just, she just rolled with it. This is always amazed. It was a very, very traumatic time. But it was a time where we sensed enormous amounts of peace as well. And that sense of people's prayers carrying you was felt. And I very supernaturally um, both Craig and I said although we we did have fear and we did cry sob worry undergirding that was a sense of enormous amounts of peace and we had the most amazing conversations with our daughter who said why me and she on her own as an 11 year old and this is the part that gets me came to a conclusion why not her 
and was assured that if she had to die, as much as she didn't want to, she knew where she was going. And then to watch this little girl, who just amazed me. I, I learned so much from my child in those moments. So much more concerned about everybody around her. Like She came out of her first biopsy crying, not because she was in pain or she had felt sick, or she, but for all these people who had prayed for her. And the first thing she wanted to do when she got home was to sit on my phone on WhatsApp to reply to all these people and say, thank you for praying for me. 11 years old, and I'm just bawling my eyes out, and she's bawling her eyes out, because these people are so amazing. They've been praying for me, Mommy. It was amazing. Yeah, it was quite, quite an incredible time and wonderful gospel opportunities. So many wonderful gospel opportunities. The one that nothing has come of it in terms of salvation, but being able to talk to a very dear dear old man who I love. He's written these amazing children's books back in South Africa that have been part of my children's growing up. And he is very anti-Christian faith and who Jesus is. And he could not cope that God could have done this to this child. And we only really know each other online. But he felt so much. He drew this beautiful illustration of her, which looked exactly like her. He did it before her op. And she looked exactly like that after the op, which was really uncanny. Um, and he, he just he couldn't face it. But it gave me an opportunity to share the gospel with him. And he got to see online through our Facebook updates and all of that, that Jesus was our priority and that we had assurance. And I pray for him regularly and I pray to this day that that was a seed in his life and that he knows Jesus before he dies. Um, so, yeah, our family who don't know Jesus got to see us walk this as believers. And I pray that somehow Your people... Your wider can, family. Yeah, my yeah. wider family. Mm. Yeah, the wider family. Mm. And I pray that it sowed seeds. Mm. Yeah. So not long after that very dramatic incident, you guys must have started thinking about moving to Australia. Yes. How did that all come about? The idea of moving overseas kept cropping up, and it was something we toyed with as a you know, bit of an adventure. And Craig was quite keen to do that kind of thing. But never, you know, when push came to shove, it was going to be a hard decision to make. Very long story short, his current company wanted to keep him in the company, knew that in a couple of years the company was going to be shutting down in Cape Town. They wanted to hang on to him. And so they said, Brisbane, Australia, we want you there. And they had been talking about the US as well, and I hadn't really loved that idea. Um, so Brisbane, Australia was much more palatable to me. Um, my brother lives in Perth. And uh, yeah, they... they put the proposal on the table. After some years of it being an idea that may or may not come to fruition, and then we had to make a decision. And it's a one thing entertaining an idea. It's another thing when it becomes one you have to make a decision about. And that was really, really, really hard. We put those pros and cons down, as one does, and it was completely balanced. That There were many things that we were going to be leaving behind but many positive things too. And it really actually came down to, at the time of having to make the decision, there being no other job for him. And in South Africa, in the current climate, it is not easy for people of males who are white in their 40s to find another job um, easily, certainly not because. easy at all. Because of affirmative action in South Africa, um, because the economy is not doing well, so it's not like there are jobs rolling out anyway. And he had put his CV out here, there and everywhere. 
and hadn't had any bites at all, really. I mean, he'd gone to a number of interviews, but nothing. And so we made a decision to come to Australia. That's long story short, we did. And here we are. And here you are. And so, I mean, so I know you love South Africa as a country and so many loved friends and family live there. Um, Did you feel like you were abandoning ship a little bit? Yes, yes. Along with our move has been enormous amounts of guilt and of varying kind. Guilt for leaving our country. South Africa is a wonderful, beautiful country and the real people are incredible, but there are real big problems in South Africa and there are relational problems amongst the different races and different socioeconomic groups and this is ramping up, um, fueled by social media and the kind of um, social justice movement which has a lot of good things about it, but also a lot of negative things about it and there is just a lot of anger and a lot of lack of communication and a lot of judgment. And so I was very aware that I'm a white person leaving South Africa, going to, of all places, Australia. (laughs) Um, And our individual circumstances don't actually matter in the big picture. You have abandoned your country, you have left. Um, You've, you know, you can, there's business as well. Look at you, you can, you're so privileged. You can just go to another privileged country and leave us. So there's enormous amounts of guilt associated with that and pride. I don't want to be seen as that person. So I, I just have examined my own self. Do I, do I care more about how I am perceived than what's actually going on in my heart? And what is actually going on in my heart is another question. So there was all that guilt. And then also um, we left a lot of family behind. My parents still live there. My little sister still lives there. My older sister is in Israel and has lived there for most of her life. My brother's lived in Perth for nine years. My husband's family, um, his brothers, his parents, all the cousins, they all live in Cape Town. It was really hard to say goodbye to them. We left a wonderful home group of people who are like family to us. Uh, And friends, dear, dear friends, very, very hard to do. So... There is a fair amount of guilt. And we left and we've come to this place, which is amazing, so many levels, and don't have the hardships that we had back in South Africa either. So, yeah. In terms of um, safety? And safety, crime, stability. stability, financial stability. Right now in Cape Town, Cape Town has just gone through the last two years of tremendous drought and has been on water restrictions of note, where people are flushing their toilets with buckets and... Are restricted to two-minute showers once a day, kind of thing, with you huge penalties. Brisbane now, got close yeah, to that about Br- a decade Brisbane ago. Brisbane did, yes, that's right, yeah. but not as bad. Yeah, uh, Cape Town was facing day zero, where mm. they were going to have to shut off the water. There was going to be no water. You could open the tap, there would be nothing. Um, we came very, very close to that, but managed to halve. It's pretty amazing. They managed to halve their water consumption as a city mm. in a period of 18 months I think it was which has never been done in the world before so that's amazing Um, but still living through all of that they've had uh, endless problems with electricity so there's rolling blackouts Mm. and again that could happen here soon it it, it could (laughs) it could but a lot of a lot of trouble and trauma and it's hard it's hard living there it's Mm. beautiful country beautiful people the city is amazing we went back to visit just this December and I was in awe again of how beautiful Cape Town is. Mm. Um, but it's not easy. Mm. Yeah. Mm. 
So what is keeping you standing firm in Christ at the moment, Taryn? Tori, what is keeping me firm? Um, the grace of God. Uh, to this day, I know that I am saved because of Jesus and nothing to do with me because I am so bad at putting in measures to keep me growing. Um, so the things that do help me are good friends like yourself who keep me accountable. So it's so good to do regular walks and prayer together. And I get to do that with another young young woman. Are we, young, are we young so women young. still? We oh, are yeah. so young. <laughs> uh, another friend. Um, and to walk and pray together and keep each other accountable. Homeschooling actually has really helped because I have the burden of responsibility of teaching my children. And so I have the time and flexibility to do that in the morning, to spend time in the Word with my kids. And so that's that does help because I, if I'm not having quiet times on my own, at least I'm getting time in the Word with my children. Um, yeah, and I think the Lord often keeps throwing circumstances at me where I go, I have no idea how to handle this, and has me on my knees, if not physically, certainly in spirit. Um, and that that helps a tremendous amount. And I need more in my life because I'm aware that I need to practice what I preach with my children. Just this morning I was talking to them about how important it is to to know the gospel, to know what we believe, to be able to defend our faith, to be able to have an answer when people ask us questions. And I feel that I could grow enormously in that area. So one of the things I do that does help along these lines is I tend to listen to podcasts like The Lydia Project <laughs> and sermons and What so are your other favourites? What else do you listen so to? So I listen to them when I'm cleaning. Yep. So every Friday, that's cleaning day for all of us. And so, I, so it's great, actually, because I'll be listening and I still want to listen and I've finished the task. Like, what else can I clean? I want to keep <laughs> listening. Um, I, I go through stages of favourites. So I tend to kind of follow a speaker more than a podcast per se. So I love the Lydia Project for varying that up. Um, but I have listened a lot to Ravi Zachariah, Piper, Desiring God, the Gospel Coalition as well, whatever crops up on that. Um, Larry Crabb, he's got some really good things to say about living the Christian life in our world and caring about other people and uh, counselling. I'm sure that's enough. It is enough. Thank you, Taryn, so much for opening up and sharing all your thoughts and your story with us on the Lydia Project. one more story. You can tell one more story. One of the things that I have been very grateful for about having written the book um, and ideally not knowing everything, all the difficulties of writing the book, I might have been too scared to have written it, but going in blind and doing this. One of the things I really wanted from this book was to be able to share the gospel in the story. And a story that comes out of the story that is so precious to me is while I was writing the gospel presentation part of the story so the gospel is weaved right through but there is a section in the book where a young boy hears the gospel as outlined to him by a teacher 
And as I was writing it, I just was so aware that this was an enormous burden of responsibility almost to, to tell the gospel well. And that somebody might not know Jesus and might read this and that the Lord could use this to convert that person. And I was overwhelmed with that sense while I was writing that. And I remember exactly where I was. I was not sitting well. I was sitting on my bed, <laughs> my laptop, getting a sore shoulder and back. And I just stopped and I prayed and I said, Lord, please, even if only one person comes to know the Lord through this, my prayers, they will. And my cheeky prayers, I'd love to hear about them this side of heaven. And that was pretty much the essence of the prayer. Anyway, yes, two or three years later, I was part of a book club that I'd been for many years of these older women. Wonderful, wonderful older women who I grew and learned so much from. And one of them, um, her mum was in her 80s in a retirement village in her own little house, very wealthy, and so everybody had their own little space. Nobody really interacted. And this woman in her 80s was desperate to carry on having significance for the gospel. And so she prayed, Dear Lord, <laughs> please help me reach my neighbors. Now, she couldn't walk, she, or she had very limited mobility. She couldn't get to her neighbors, and she wanted to be able to share the gospel with them. Well, the Lord saw fit to burn her house down <laughs> through an electric blanket that malfunctioned. She wasn't there at the time. So many miracles happened in that story. The things she really needed didn't burn. She needed certain papers that were saved, and her Bible, if I remember correctly, I think her Bible was saved as well. Um, but then she had to move out. So she ended up moving in with my friend Jean. Before then, she went to hospital. All her neighbors came to visit her. And so she got to share the gospel with these people in hospital. It was amazing. I love that part of the story. He answered her prayer by burning her house down so she could share the gospel. And then she stayed with her daughter, Jean, my friend, um, while her house was being rebuilt. But her carers came with her. And not much to do, except when she needs them. And so one of them was an avid reader. And so Jean said, read whatever's on my bookshelves. Go for it, just read. And this woman picked up from her shelf, she picked up a Francine Rivers book. She picked up a Ted Decker book, and she picked up my book. And through reading those books, she came to Jean's mum and said, I have been convinced of the gospel. I want to become a Christian. And somehow my little book, Seekers of the Lost Boy, had impacted this woman's life and brought her to know Jesus. And that, when I heard that story, and I'm so amazed I haven't cried telling you, because I always cry telling that story, is worth it. If, if nobody else read it, and she was the only person to have read it, and that was the result, it was worth it. And that is my favorite story from having written because of the last boy. That's so great. When yeah. you've got time, you really should just smash out another one. <laughs> just Actually, out. it leaves it open to a sequel, doesn't it? It or does. To... I, so when I wrote it, I had the intention of carrying on, yep. not knowing what I was going into. Yeah. It's a wonderful thing, ignorance. Isn't it? <laughs> it really is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you for sharing that story, Taryn. Thank you for sharing all your stories. It's been great to chat with you, and we'll hear from you again soon. Thanks for listening. We would love to know what you thought of this episode, so feel free to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram via the handle at TLPCWCW. You can comment on the specific episode. You can have a look at what other people are saying. You can contact us um, through those social media platforms or you can send us an email to TLPCWCW at gmail. We would love to get this interview and others into the ears of people who are looking for stimulating and encouraging content. 
if you haven't already, please pop over to iTunes and leave us a review to help boost the podcast in the world of search engine logarithms. That would be awesome. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you have a great day. Bye.